You know, we're doing a series uh, that's called Our Core, which we're trying to define who we are as a church, not just individuals as believers, but we together as a church. And our values reflect who we are. And this morning, I'm going to talk about a value that is really a passion of my heart. And it's a value that I want more in my life, and I hope, and I think many of us at Moraine want to see it more often here at Moraine. And I'm going to tell you, it's a, it's a core value of God. It's a core of who God is. And the more we reflect this value, the more glory that God's going to get. So the value we're going to talk about this morning is grace and truth. Um, waiting for that to get up there. Is it up there? For you? There it is. Grace and truth is our context. We believe we all need grace and truth. That's how God meets us in our brokenness. It's how we engage with one another in our current culture. Grace and truth. It's not just a matter of grace. It's not just a matter of truth. It's not a matter of this much grace and this much truth, or this much truth and this much grace. It's a matter of grace and truth, perfectly wedded together as one. It's the way God has met us. It's what our need is. It was our need for our salvation. It's our need for our daily walk. And it's the way we need to embrace and engage the culture around us as we seek to bring Jesus to them. So we're going to look at that this morning. I want, to, I want to show you, first of all, why I say this is at the core of God. I believe that grace and truth is a core value of God, which makes it all that more important to be a core value for us. Turn to Exodus 34 in your Bibles. Exodus 34. I'll give you a moment to get there because I want you to see it in the text. We'll be picking up in verse 5. Let me give you the context, though, what was going on here. The context is, is in chapter 34, I'm sorry, 33, we're in 34 now, Moses had prayed, God, God, show me your glory. And so God said he'll do that. Uh, he said he will cause his glory to pass in front of Moses. Matter of fact, he said, nobody can see my face uh, or lest they'll die. Therefore, they can only see his back. And what, what God means by that is this. Not that he's a mean God. If you look at my face, I'm going to kill you. It's that God's glory is so magnificent for a human being to see it in the face, they would die. They can't take it. <laughs> so God in his mercy is going to pass by his back in front of Moses so he can see the back of his glory. So here we come to verse 5 of chapter 33, or 34 now, and note what, what Moses is doing. God told him he's going to pass his glory in front of him. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as 
He called upon the name of the Lord. I love this. God's glory showed up as he was praying. He prayed, God, show me your glory. So in response to that, God said, so here he is the next day. He's praying and he's calling upon the name of the Lord. And while he's praying, I thought it's interesting. When was Jesus transfigured and all his glory was displayed on the mount? It said, as he was praying. Brothers and sisters, I need to pray more. We need to pray more because God's glory shows up when we pray. And as Moses was praying, this is what happened. The Lord, in verse 6, passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And now this is his glory. This is his glory that he's proclaiming in front of Moses. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And then in verse 8 is Moses' response to the revelation of the glory of God. Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. When we get a glimpse of God's glory, we can't help but to bow before him and worship him. And what we see, God is describing his glory. Now he's kind of, that's a big word that is kind of out there. It's a word that really talks about the essence of who God is at his core um, I like to remember it this way. I use this little acronym for glory, and it's the word God. And wait, can we put it on the big screen too, that one? I got it in front of me. There we go. God. God on display, G-O-D. It's the best way I can describe glory simply is it's God putting himself on display. And this is what he was doing for Moses. God passed in front of Moses. He put himself on display for him so he could see who he is. And so we bring God glory. A lot of people talk, we got, we got to do things excellently so we can get, bring God glory. It isn't about excellence. God works through brokenness. <laughs> and so God is put on display through us, and it's when Jesus is seen in our life that God is glorified. And so what was happening here, and when I say Jesus, it's who he is and, and all that he is is God. We see here God is gracious in verse 6, and God is truth. Grace and truth. And he kind of piles it on with grace here as he gives us a number of synonyms that could really fit under grace. God is compassionate. He's abounding in loving kindness. He forgives. And so when we think of God's grace, you can think of his compassion and his loving kindness and his forgiveness. So he, he really loads on the grace, but he balances that out when he says this, grace and truth. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren. So we see that 
While God is full of grace, he's full of truth, and he holds man accountable for the guilt of his sin, and the consequences are borne by them. And so God's glory, the essence, the core of who he is, is seen in grace and truth. Turn to John chapter 1, because we see the same thing in Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. And he says this, verse 14 of John 1, and the word became flesh. We know all the way back up in the context, getting to here, the word is Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived right here on earth. And we saw his glory. There it is. The very essence and the core of who God is, God on display. We saw Jesus' glory. And what was his glory like? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This glory is like no other glory. It's the glory of one who's the very Son of God, who's God himself. And what's that glory like? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Not this much grace, this much truth, not this much truth, this much grace, but Jesus walked on earth. And what they saw was truth and grace perfectly wedded together as one. And then down in verse 17 it says this, for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Realized means become real. It became a reality. Wasn't just the concept, wasn't just a Bible verse, but now we saw it in flesh and blood as the word became flesh. We beheld in Jesus what grace and truth looked like as we saw it experienced in his life. I was thinking about this. We often like to think of contrasting God as, as a God of law and a God of grace. Uh, we see here, according to Jesus, a God of law, but he was a God of grace and truth as the two come together as one. So what we see in Exodus 34 and John 1 basically is this, the God's glory, a core value of God. The very essence at the heart, you say, who is God? What's God like? If you want to get to the essence of what God is like, God is full of grace and he is full of truth. And that's who he is. That's what we see. And that makes grace and truth a very important value for Moraine Valley Church. Because I believe if you take every other value it really finds its foundation, grace and truth. Because the truth defines what the other values are and the grace gives us the ability to live it out. And so this truth is important. I want to show it to you in a couple other passages in the Old Testament. Let me, let me tell you first of all about the word loving kindness. 
It's a word that shows up hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a basically you could say it's a synonym with grace. And uh, just like compassion and mercy and forgiveness, uh, it's one of the ways God displays his grace is loving kindness. Well, the, the word for loving kindness in the Old Testament is hesed. And um, the word basically refers to the way that God relates to those he's in a covenant relationship with. So when it says that God love, loves the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that's the love that God has for everybody. When you talk about hesed, now we're talking just about the love he has for those he's in relationship with. This is the way he relates to those he's in relationship with. And this is what that word basically means. It's a deep down desire in the heart of God to pursue and to bless the people he's in relationship with. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. God's heart, deep down at the core that pushes and drives him, is to pursue his people to bless them. And you know what? It's not just an attitude. It's an attitude and an action. It's an attitude that has feet to it. We sang it today. You know, his loveness or his goodness is chasing after me and we see it all over our life. That's God's loving kindness. He's chasing after us. He's going after his people. His heart is to pursue his people and bless them. His goodness is all over our lives. And that's what his loving kindness is. That's what his grace is. And he is seeking to bless his people. Now I want you to note these verses now that we get a little context here. Some Old Testament passages. Psalm 25. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimony. It's the people he's in relationship with, a covenant relationship with. And so all of his paths, paths are this. It doesn't mean it's an action that somebody took. A path is kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to school and I cut through this field to get there and I keep on walking on the same piece of turf that it actually wears down and now there's a path that's been formed because this is the way I always go. And what he's saying is God's ways, God's paths, God's normal habitual behavior, so to say, is one of loving kindness and truth. Then we look at this next passage, Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and look at this, abundant, abundant, overflowing, generous supply of loving kindness and truth. Look at this next Psalm, Psalm 85:10. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Now, let me, I, I think, I don't know if I, I've said this before, there's a thing that's called... Uh, Synonymous parallelism, that's Hebrew poetry. That means that the two lines are synonymous with one another, even though they use the same words to communicate the same truth. You follow me? 
So it's parallelism, it's, it's one next to the other, basically the same truth in different words. Loving kindness and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I love that. Met and kissed. You know what he's saying? Basically, loving kindness and truth kiss one another. They're one, they're wedded, they love each other, they have affection for each other, they, they are so intimate with one another that they kiss one another. And so many of us struggle and so many churches struggle with grace and truth as kissing one another as they either err on the side of grace or they err on the side of truth without the two kissing together. I think I have one more verse. Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, I love this. Do not let kindness, and that's, by the way, the same, that's hesed, even though they translate kindness. Do not let loving kindness, hesed, and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So, and this is what happens when you do. You'll find favor and good reputation in the sight of God and man. Brothers and sisters, when we write grace and truth on our hearts, uh, when we let them kiss in our lives, we find favor with God, we find reputation with God and with man when we walk that way. So, There's a concept I've heard often, the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and law. The New Testament God is a God of grace and mercy. Here's the reality, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God is a God of grace and truth, perfectly blend together and wedded together as one, they kiss each other. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we understand who God is at the core of his being, <laughs> he's a God of grace and truth, one that the two kiss together perfectly. Now let me, you know, we, we kind of saw now what the Bible says. I wanna, how does this work out as a core value in a church? in a church like Moraine Valley Church. I'm, I'm gonna try to give um, what I'm gonna call the spectrum of churches because we're talking about churches. We can apply this to our own life as well, but right here in the center, this is Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, perfectly wedded together as one kissing one another, okay? Realized in Jesus, not just a Bible verse about him, not just the truth about him, but this grace and truth were realized, it was lived out in Jesus' life, in Jesus' conversations, in Jesus' teachings, in Jesus' miracles. As Jesus walked, this was what came out of his life, okay? And so what we have here is grace and truth perfectly blended together. Well, let me just take a side note on that. Grace, many people when we think of grace, we think of freedom. We think of the free gifts we get. You know, and so we get all these free gifts from Jesus, and that is God's grace. We think of freedom from sin 
and Satan and their power from us. We think of the freedom to, to do what we want when scripture doesn't speak directly to something. And we think of the freedom from condemnation that we have, and all those are true of grace, but let me tell you another part of true grace that's just as true. Grace doesn't just give us the freedom to do what we want. It gives us the power to do as we ought. Grace is an ability thing where God fills us with the power and the ability to do what he calls us to do. And so many people, when they talk about grace, they take that out of context. Why, I'm free. I'm free in Jesus. And I can do what I want. When at the same time, grace is the other side of the coin of grace, is the ability that God gives us from his spirit to live out what he calls us to do in his word. Now, truth, on the other hand, I'm not going to take a long time on that. We did a series on that last fall. I think this card is still back at the Welcome Center. But we saw that there's many in this auditorium who grew up in the uh, modern age, sort of say. There's many in the postmodern age. And what we learned is that truth is not found in the modern age, nor is it in the postmodern. It's not the way the moderns approach the seek of truth. It's not the way the postmoderns. It's what the Bible reveals as truth, as Jesus says, thy word is truth. And so... You can pick one of these up if you want to, but we need to understand truth basically is revealed from heaven by God, not discovered by man, whether it's through modern means or postmodern means. So here's in the center Jesus, who at the core of his being was full of grace and truth, and he realized it in the way he lived. We're together? Now I'm gonna go over here, and this is truth. Here's a whole spectrum, there's Jesus. And we have way over here, we have churches, because again, we're talking about churches that are put truth over grace. And they take it to the, you know, we're at the far end of the spectrum to the umpteenth degree. And you can take truth all the way back to the center. There's churches all the way, people all the way there. And on this end, they're the kind of people, if you just disagree with them by one degree, they're ready to chop off your head for Jesus' sake because they feel they're serving the Lord for that. Again, it's an extreme, but they're out there, believe me. And um, so you got people there, and if you don't say it the way they say it, if you don't interpret it the way they say it, if you don't apply it the way they say it, they hold you in suspicion. I'm not sure I can trust this person because they don't do everything exactly the way that I see it. And so they got truth to such a degree over grace that it's hard to see any grace there. Now on the other end of the spectrum, we have churches. They're all about grace. And truth is put way down low. And now again, there's a spectrum here who take us all the way back to the center. And the way that these people look at it is that they say, we don't want to trouble people with sin. We don't want to shame them with that thing of sin. We need to be gracious and let them know that God loves everybody. And so now what happens is, is that uh, rather than questioning 
someone's uh, lifestyle in any way. And again, you know what, brothers, let me tell you, when I, when I consider things sin, it's not to beat people up, you're a sinner. It's to help us know the only answer is Jesus. If we give a different definition to man's problems than sin, we will never bring the right solution to them. So when we talk about sin and something being sin, we're not being mean and legalistic and hard-handed. We want to bring people the answer they need because Jesus is the only answer to sin. And so here we got on this end, these people say, well, we don't want to shame people with sin. We don't want to guilt them with that. We don't want them to feel bad. Matter of fact, they go to the place where they begin, rather than questioning somebody's lifestyle or beliefs, they're going to question the Bible. They're going to question the exclusive claims of Christianity and say, come on, are you telling me that the Bible is the, is the only, or let me say the ultimate truth, because there are truth beyond the Bible, but the ultimate truth and every other truth is interpreted in light of the Bible. And so rather than questioning the person, they're gonna question the Bible. And they're gonna reject the Bible or reinterpret it at places that don't fit their beliefs. Now what this church does is this, they look at the world, they look at the culture, they look at society, they look at science. That's the lens, by the way. Let me say when they look at, that's the lens they use. Let's say I can't see without my glasses. Well, this is now the glasses of the world, the culture. And when they look at the Bible, they interpret it through the current movements of the culture and through science and through uh, other things like this that are going on. And what I believe at the center with Jesus, the lens needs to be the Bible, the truth, where when I look at the world, I look at the current culture, I look at science, and yes, science brings truth, but science can't interpret truth. You follow me? So I'm not saying science isn't bad, I'm not saying there aren't lessons we can learn from society. But we need to interpret them in light of the truth rather than reinterpreting the truth in light of the culture and science. And so what we have here at the center is Jesus who perfectly weds grace and truth and churches all the way. Where's Moraine Valley? I'd love to say we're right here at the center, but my guess is we're not. <laughs> I know I'm not. I feel more like a teeter-totter than maybe this side or that. I feel sometimes maybe I'm erring to the side of grace. Sometimes I'm erring to the side of truth. But our constant goal as a church and our constant goal as a people is not just to have the theological belief in grace and truth, but like Jesus, to realize it in our daily lives, in our daily walks as we engage with the world around us and with each other. Grace and truth, the heart of God's glory, the heart of our walk. You know, hopefully you got one of these charts when you came in. If you didn't, we have a few people that would have some. If those of you that have those, if you'd stand up, raise your hands if you didn't get one when you came in and they'll get one to you. Keep your hand up high. There's a chart you want to keep with yourself. 
Thank you. Great, we got a whole bunch of people passing them out. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to give you a chart of, you're, you're going to get inside one of our elder board meetings right now, because this is a discussion we had at our elder board, uh, actually just about three or four weeks ago. And uh, I'll wait for you to get, and I think Pete actually worked on trying to make it into a PowerPoint. It's a little bit, let's see if we can get it on the big screen. Yeah, I think, I don't know if you can see it all the way up there, but hopefully you've got a card you can take with you to review. Keep your hand up high if you don't have one, they'll get it to you. I think most people have it now. And let me just describe this, because what this is, I'm gonna call it theology or truth through the eyes of the generations. Modern, postmodern, there's different ways we approach the whole truth issue. And uh, if, you, if you disagree with something here, this was my best attempt, not a perfect attempt. I didn't find this online and copy it. I didn't read it in a book. This was just Pat Peglow trying to put together the way he's experienced it and seen it in our world today. I hope you can improve on it, make it better. Um, but this, so bottom line, you're just dealing with my best attempt to understand the way the generations look at things. The anchor is God's glory in Jesus that's expressed in grace and truth. We've already saw that biblically. That's the anchor that can't be moved. They're not opposites. They're not opponents. They're not mutually exclusive, but they kiss one another. That's the anchor, okay? But I find that the two generations seem to approach the anchor a little bit differently. And I'm hoping as we discuss this, we begin to get a little bit more fluent as we talk to one another. But what we see is that on the left-hand side of the card, I don't know which side, yeah, it'd be the left-hand side of the PowerPoint, is the millennial generation basically 45 to 7, ballpark figures, boomer, Gen X, 76 to 46. And so this is the way that normally look at truth. This is the bent they have that I see. This is the starting point they come from. And what you're going to see here, I want to help us say, we need to learn from one another. Bob, you, you did such a great job last week. Thank you, brother. We need to learn and respect one another and learn from one another. There's no bad guys here. Uh, if you mess with the anchor, we got a problem. If you talk about the anchor in different ways, we need to understand that and appreciate that and learn from one another. So what we have on the one side with the millennial generation is a bent towards compassion well, the boomers have a bent towards faithfulness. We need to be faithful to the Lord. On the millennial side, there's a bent towards being merciful. On the boomer side, there's a bent towards being right. This is what's right. We got to be right. The millennials have a bent towards orthopraxy. The boomers have a bent towards orthodoxy. Orthodoxy would be getting the text right. Orthopraxy is living the text right. You following me? Kind of verse 14, 
grace, you know, we, we, we interpret it right. Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's orthodoxy. But orthopraxy is verse 17 of John 1, where Jesus realized it as he walked here on earth and lived it out in the relationships. So again, this isn't one is good or one is bad or one is over the other, but rather there's an emphasis which comes with each one. The millennials like to discuss truth while the boomers like to declare it. See, they'd rather be in a small group where we can talk and discuss the truth. The boomers rather have somebody who can be up there and teach it to me and declare to me what the truth is. The millennials, um, they're not afraid to deal with the hard questions. We'll, we'll love to sing. You know, we love the clear truth. God's loving kindness is chasing after me. You know, we love that. We'll declare that. We'll affirm it. But many of the younger generation go, well, what about this and what about that? What about this in my life and my friend's life and in the world? So they're going to focus maybe a little bit more on the questions of, uh, you know, how does this, you know, there, there are some places I don't see this fitting while people in my age focus on where it does work and where it's clear. Millennials love passion. The boomers love commitment. Well, we're just committed. You know, we're just, it's what we're supposed to do. It's what God tells us to do. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be committed. While the, the younger generation says, show me some passion and excitement about that, and that's, that's where I'm going to go. The younger generation has a greater concern about social justices and issue and I'm going to say social justice in its best sense of the term. I know there's a hundred ways to interpret that. But the younger generation has a concern for the social issues that are outside the church and in the world, while the older generation is more concerned about biblical justice and making sure we, we are getting it right biblically. Millennials are more concerned about all week. Every day is pretty much the same before the Lord Boomer, Sunday's the big day. This is the day we get together, we hear God's word, we worship together. This is the pinnacle of the experience. Millennials, again, they like to dialogue the group. The boomers love the monologue with the preacher. The millennials are more concerned about a corporate expression while the boomers are more individual. I was meeting with a group recently and it was interesting because one of the guys asked me very fairly, he says, Pat, when you apply it, are there ways we can do this together, not just in, you know, my, my age group, hey, I'm gonna tell you what to do, we're gonna go home and work it out on our own. The millennials are saying, could you show us a way we can do this together corporately and how we can apply this together? Again, not right or wrong, it's just different. The millennials, for the most part, see the world as their ministry. Many of the boomers see the world as their enemy. <laughs> don't get tainted by the world. Be careful there. Stay back. Well, you don't want that to... So what happens is, is that uh, the millennials are going to go to them. We're going to say, come to us. Come to church with us. Come see my church. Come, come Sunday. When the millennials are going to say, we're going to go to them, the church, we're going to go out there, we're going to get on their ter territory and their turf and meet them there. And because of this, the world is their ministry, can be a little bit more messy. While the boomers are more concerned about being holy and pure and, 
You know, we, we got to, so I, I can't go out and get into that mess and I can't watch that kind of thing. I'm not going to do that because that's going to mess me up. Well, they're, they're going to go get in the middle of the mess just like Jesus did when he came and lived among us. A little more risky for them, a little bit more safer for the older ones as the closer we stay to church and getting everything right. There seems to be a little bit more flexibility among that generation of the way things are done, more stability among the boomers. So this is the question, what would you add to it from your experience? Again, this is my observations, guys. This isn't from some authority, this is just from me. Actually, since I wrote this, I thought of two more that I would add to it. Actually, the millennials seem to emphasize the experience of God more while the boomers seem to experience the knowledge of God more. And we want to know God and know the Bible and know everything. They want to experience that and have it as their experience. The millennials, it's called deconstruction, tearing down, or maybe in its best sense, let me give, it's asking a lot of questions. Why do you do that? Why do you believe that? The older generation kind of starts with the foundation is there and tries to build upon it. And so the issue with all this as I present it this morning because we're a multi-generational church living really in a sense with two different ages of the postmodern and the modern living together. We need to learn how to live with each other in a good way in a way that we don't become suspicious and judgmental of one another, but rather we understand and appreciate one another. And as Bob said last week, it needs to come from both sides. Because whether you're a millennial or a boomer, there seems to be a lot of suspicion and judgmentalness that I see going on back and forth that we need to learn to appreciate and value what the others bring. So the question we asked ourselves is, what tone and what attitudes need to be addressed by us as leaders at Moraine and for us as a church, what tones and what attitudes will help us live with grace and truth? You know, what, the what you say and the way you say it is just as important as the content of what you say. And one of the things we talked about, I know my, my good brother mentioned, it seems the older generation thinks the younger generation just doesn't get it and that um, someday they'll get it. While maybe what God, and I'm talking about the young generation of Christians now, I'm not talking about the secular world, that the young generation of Christians is just what the world needs today. Can we appreciate that? Can we value that? You know, um, let me just close this little chart with this thought. We can be different in what we emphasize, the way we approach it, and the way we talk about it. But we can't tamper with the anchor. And when you start to mess with the anchor, God's truth or God's grace, then we've got a problem. Then we stepped outside. I'm talking today about those who hold the anchor well, 
a next generation of people that are holding on to truth as the Bible reveals it and holding on to grace, both the freedom and the responsibility of grace and the ability that grace gives. And I love the fact because they haven't stepped into the grounds, but we got to work to earn it or follow because some have stepped beyond and say, well, Jesus really didn't die for our sins. Jesus was an example for us to follow. That steps outside of grace. And so I'm talking about a next generation that holds God's truth and God's grace together as one and they kiss. But we may talk about it differently and we may approach it differently. We need to learn to be fluent with one another if we're gonna be a multi-generational church. And if we're gonna be people that can touch the world outside of these walls, we need to not start with judgmentalism and condemnation to those who think different than us. And I'm talking to both generations now because I've seen it and felt it from both generations. And we need to learn how to dialogue in a healthy way. Fluency. It's the ability to do something with ease. Um, you know, you go into another country, I want to learn how to speak the language fluently. And so the best way to do that is to live among the people and you start to point, you know, what do you call this glass? You know, you just point, you can't even say that. You just point to the glass and then they tell you the word in that language. And then you start to learn it. You deal all day long as you're listening and talking and learning. Better than a book, better than uh, a class, but living it. And so this is my encouragement to you. This little card you received today. Get with somebody of a different generation than you. And talk to them about it. Try to understand. Now, I get that there's some people that are younger that think more like the older, and there's some that are older that think like the younger. Talk about the basic trend of a generation and the way they approach things. Try to get together to better understand, to better appreciate, and to gain value. Because you know what, guys? I want to know the truth, but I want to experience the truth. <laughs> I want to be a person who's faithful, but I want to be a person who's compassionate. And I want to, you know, the list goes on and on. And how can we learn and value from our differences rather than letting our differences drive us away as people and as a church? And I have a concern because I've seen it and I felt it. I felt it towards me. And I, and I maybe I, I think I've probably done it to others where we've moved farther apart rather than getting closer together. We need to understand we can't tamper with the anchor, but the way people speak about the anchor in these two different ages of the modern and the postmodern may be different. And we need to learn and grow and benefit. And yes, just like grace and truth kiss, we need to learn to kiss in such a way that we can bring great glory to God at Moraine Valley Church because grace and truth, not as only believed, but is realized in our relationships. Love you guys. Like I said, I don't do this perfectly. I want to grow in this. We want to grow as a church. And grace, may God give us the grace to do it.
that's what it takes. Let me pray and we'll close up. So Father, for me it's a privilege to preach on this because this has been a burden of my life, but it's also something that I know I fall short in. And I, I just want to ask you, Lord, that you would, would you work in me? Would you work in Moraine Valley Church? Would we be a people where grace and truth kiss? Lord, that we would not be a people that exclude people because our truth is so heavy with no grace. And we would not be people that throw out the truth because we say we don't want to burden people with the truth. God, would you teach us how these two can kiss in our life? And Lord, I pray like Jesus, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take Jesus in my life, realizing this in our church and in our lives. So Lord, we confess our need. I confess, Lord, I fall short. And I ask you, Lord, would you, in your grace, work in me, work in us, so that you get greater glory through us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.